Hi, everybody. Today is Thursday, March 31st, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the UTSA Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today, we have Aaron Giddes with us. Aaron is professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. And congratulations on your recent promotion to professor. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Erin and her lab study neurons and circuits and the basal ganglia at all levels, including genetic identification of cell types, working out their local and long-range circuitry, studying firing patterns, relationships to movement and motivation, and their dysfunction in movement disorders, especially Parkinson's disease and dystonia. Some of her work is in exploring new treatments for those disorders. So, hi Erin, thanks a lot for coming. Hi, thank today. you very much. With us today, Matt Wanat. Howdy. And I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. There's a lot we could talk about, but let's start with deep brain stimulation. Now, DBS is a great treatment for Parkinson's disease and some other movement disorders like essential tremor and dystonia, and it's also a little bit of a mystery. So by way of background, could you start with a brief update on what we know and what we don't know about how it works and some of your ideas about how to make an improved version? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the greatest mysteries is an accurate way of describing it. <laughs> and I think that there's still not a great understanding in terms of the mechanisms of why DBS works, um, but it is at the kind of symptom and patient level, it is a really effective treatment. And there's a lot of interest in research in trying to understand the mechanisms behind DBS, because if we understand that, maybe we can make it even better um, and have a better sense of which patients would best respond to DBS. Um, seems to, I think, kind of one explanation that uh, mechanistically we're starting to assemble around is that it can act almost like a pacemaker for parts of the brain that have been disrupted due to disease. So, um, for example, the basal ganglia where I study, which is involved in Parkinson's disease, the normal patterns of activity that you see in this part of the brain become really disorganized, and deep brain stimulation uh, seems to alleviate or kind of restore some normal pattern of activity. Um, or some people also think that it just scrambles everything so much the whole system becomes silent. But whether it's because it's more regular or whether it's because it's silent, just getting rid of the really noisy um, activity, uh, disorganized activity seems to be one of the keys through which DBS is working. So why, why would we want to change it? What's, what's wrong with it? Yeah. I mean, um, even if we don't know how it works. Right. <laughs> if it works, good enough. That's right. Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, one of the limitations is that it works really well in some patients and not as well in other patients. And sometimes in patients where it's not working as well, you can change the programming, so the, the stimulation pattern, and you can get it to work. Um, but in some patients, it just never works well. And I don't think we there's a good understanding going into the surgery of who it's going to work for and not. And before you undergo invasive neurosurgery, you'd really like to know that you've got an excellent chance of having this be successful. One of the mysteries is that it works too well, really. It works in, if you do it in subthalamic nucleus. Mm -hmm. It works if you do it in globus pallidus pars interna, yeah. which are the parts that people thought it ought to work in when they were yeah. first engaging in the, their fantasy about how it worked. And then they thought, but it definitely shouldn't work in globus pallidus externa. Right. 
because it's supposed to be kind of like a lesion. If you make a lesion in the subthalamic nucleus, you can alleviate Parkinson's disease. If you make a lesion in the internal globus pallidus, that works. But if you make a lesion in the external globus pallidus, it actually makes things worse. Mm -hmm. But DBS works in all three places. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so how can we make sense of that? I mean, thinking about circuits. But yeah. when we when we give up thinking that it's just making a a temporary lesion, yeah. we start thinking about circuits. Can that help us mm -hmm. understand it? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's kind of one of the the hopes that drives a lot of the research we do in my lab is that if we can understand the circuits that EBS is actually engaging, that that might help to reconcile some of these seemingly um, you know contradictory findings in terms of its success. Um, but I, I think that we don't have a great under a great handle on that yet. Yeah. So you have an idea about how to dissect that, or how to find out how it um, works, or what we should be doing? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that uh, probably one of the best ways to get at this is to uh, record from you know different areas of the brain when you're doing DBS in one place, um, and then asking, is it is depending on where you're stimulating, is that normalizing activity across the whole brain in some predictable way? So it almost, you know, within a circle, I mean, most of, most of the parts of the brain are reciprocally connected with each other. And so it doesn't really matter where in a circle you stimulate as long as you're in the right circle. And so that's probably what we're looking at and could be, that could be identified if we record um, in different parts of the circle while we're applying stimulation. But those things are really hard to do in patients. Because um, you can't just poke around in people's brains while you're applying stimulation. So we're trying to use uh, various models to get at this question. So I was curious, I mean, your work is, you know, really fascinating in the fact that it's very translationally relevant. And so um, you, you started with this, you know, th this problem with, you know, humans where sometimes DBS is working well and sometimes it isn't. And mm -hmm. there's a number of factors that it could potentially, you know, it, it could be histology or where, you know, sorry, where the actual probe is actually located. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, you know, do you see that also in the rodents as well, where, you know, are, do you have some that might respond, um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about the rodents, how we can actually model, you know, Parkinson's and rodents, mm -hmm. but do you see that sort of variability about that? And maybe sort of a larger, bigger question about this is, are there sort of different forms of Parkinson's disease? Like we look at this, you know, this output here, and maybe these treatment resistant individuals, they have a different constellation of changes in their circuit, relative to those that are responsive? And I guess that was a loaded question along uh, many ways, but I guess, yeah, the, you know, the rodents, what is the model that you have there? Do you see the same sort of variability that you have in the, the human literature? Yeah, yeah so um, I think there, there have not been too many studies with DBS in mice, which is the animal that, that we use, um, because mouse brains are very small, and it's much harder to get the pinpoint specificity that you would get in a human brain, for example. Um, there's been more DBS studies in rats. Um, but I think this question of, you know, what accounts for the variability in therapeutic outcome across animals hasn't been really well investigated. Um, in our own stuff, it was actually kind of uh, a relief to see that the location did seem to matter. Um, in uh, you know, sometimes we'd have animals that are Parkinsonian, 
and then we'd apply stimulation and nothing would work or you know the, we wouldn't see a therapeutic effect i'm like oh maybe maybe our hypothesis is wrong but then we'd you know do the verification postmortem of where the stimulating electrode was located and we're like oh we we're in the wrong place and then it was a really really good correlation actually when things were effective it was kind of always in this one particular place if we had missed our target, then it wasn't effective. Where's that one place? The, um, it's called the, the internal globus pallidus, and it's um, kind of a fiber bundle that seems to provide a lot of the input to the um, area of the, of the circuit that we've found the cells that we need to target. Um, I'm not sure I explained that very well. But, so, uh, so I'm interested, though, in the cells that you need to target. Yeah. Because the, the downside of the way DBS, from a conceptual point of view, the downside mm-hmm. of the way DBS is done is that it's just electrical stimulation. It stimulates everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we know that the brain is of complicated circuits, and mm-hmm. it seems unlikely that stimulating everything is yeah. going to be the right thing. Yeah. So uh, what have you learned about what's the right thing to stimulate and how to go about stimulating. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of like to think of the organization of circuits in the brain as kind of like pickup sticks, this game where you drop a bunch of colored sticks and then they all kind of land interleave, interleave with each other. And you, your job is to kind of extract one colored stick without moving any of the other ones around. And I think that's really kind of what, what neuroscientists have to figure out how to do in order to get really specific, better treatments for a whole host of neurological diseases. And yeah, and certainly the problem with current DBS is that it kind of like smashes all the sticks at once and there's no like finesse in terms of what, what, what you can get out. And so, so our, for our work, we sort of set out first to say, well, what, what are even the right targets? Like if we could direct our stimulation to any particular target in the brain, what do we need to target? Let's start there. And, um, and so we focused in on a, a particular part of the basal ganglia circuit. So the basal ganglia being this collection of nuclei that um, are important in the kind of selection and regulation of movement and seems to be the circuit that is, is, becomes the most broken in Parkinson's disease. Um, and there's a bunch of different components to the system. And, uh, and, and we were particularly interested in, in a little portion of it called the external globus pallidus or GPE because it seems to be sort of a, a, a central hub for all of the other parts of the basal ganglia. And it seems to be um, able to generate some of these um, kind of noisy patterns of activity that seem so destructive to movement. And so we wanted to target that brain area. We quickly found out that if we just kind of use a sledgehammer approach, uh, we, we aren't able to induce any sort of uh, useful motor recovery in animals. And so we dug in a little deeper and we found out that there are all different types of neurons within this one um, very small uh, portion of the basal ganglia. And and we we further found out that the way to uh, induce a more persistent recovery of movement is you have to kind of activate one half of the cells that are of a particular kind. And then you have to, at the same time, inhibit the other half of cells that seem to be of a different flavor. And it's this kind of opposite regulation of these two populations that gives you the persistent uh, motor recovery that we're able to induce 
with our cell selective stimulation. So we'd like to know what the flavors are. Uh, uh, so the, <laughs> so the um, one uh, class of neurons that you need to excite are enriched for a protein called parvalbumin. And so we're able to use uh, genetic strains of mice that express um, a recombinase in these cells, and that allows us to uh, insert uh, channelrhodopsin directly into these cells. And then the, um, and so those cells have to be activated to induce this rescue. And then the other flavor of cells uh, express a transcription factor called LIM homeobox 6 or LHX6. And, uh, and so we found that if we get mice that express Cre recombinase in this LHX6 population, um, if we turn those off selectively, we're also able to induce the rescue. So we seem to need this kind of dual action, exciting the parvalbumin neurons and inhibiting the limb homeobox 6 neurons. So that, that's probably the most exciting thing about your research is that you, you identified, you know, it, you know, a key way to be able to have a longer lasting improvement where you said sort of in the, the humans who, you know, get sort of a, a DBS, it's turned on. The, the benefit is largely transient. It's not long-lasting. And so, you know, you, you know, using this preclinical model have been able to identify this uh, manipulation, this way of being able to target these cells to have these long-lasting effects. And I guess, could you speculate, what do you think is happening? You know, I mean, you, you're doing a brief manipulation, but yet you have, you know, effects, I think you said, for at least up to four hours afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. for, what, a 30-minute simulation you had, four-hour effect. I mean, that, the, the therapeutic potential of that is huge. Mm -hmm. How? How yeah. is that potentially happening? Like, yeah. that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, so I think that, you know, one of the areas in which to improve deep brain stimulation is currently you have to have the stimulator on for the entire time that, you know, in patients, this could mean for a decade or more. And then if you turn the stimulation off, the symptoms come right back. So we were really interested in, in understanding, you know, the mechanisms of how DBS is working so that we can try to reduce the stimulation time. Because we figure the less time you have to be kind of blasting the brain with electrical stimulation, probably the better the outcomes are going to be. Um, and so, yeah, so we were very excited to find that we could induce this transient manipulation, kind of, you know, um, teasing apart the firing rates of these two populations of cells, and that this would uh, um, allow animals to continue moving for many hours after turning the stimulation off. Um, and uh, we're still uh, trying to figure out exactly why this works. So we seem to have found the targets that we need to that we that we uh, the the targets that we need to um, uh, target with deep brain stimulation, um, but we don't we don't understand well enough their role and just kind of the normal circuit to know why this works. So um, one idea, and we have some data to support this, is that um, an outcome of the intervention that we apply is that this um, kind of pathological noisy signal that the basal ganglia is spitting out to its downstream structures seems to be alleviated um, for, you know, for hours after our, our intervention. And whether this represents plasticity that we've induced, or we've just sort of, um, you know, there can be, neural circuits can exist in different stable states. Um, one stable state might be highly synchronous, another stable state might be really um, asynchronous, and then you just need to kind of transition the network from one state to another. You need like a catalyst in order to overcome that energy barrier. 
And so one idea is that our intervention is just kind of applying this catalyst to take a highly synchronous, um, pathologically synchronous circuit and kind of bounce it back into a destabilized state. I guess that opens up that and sort of another question of, you know, so you're, you're using these, uh, you know, PV um, and LHX6, you know, as ways to be able to target these cells. But what's sort of the neurotransmitter content or neuropeptide, sorry to, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. that might be in these cells that might be, you know, could potentially be uh, mediating these long lasting effects um, that you're seeing on both behavior and at sort of a circuit level? Yeah. Well, this is one of the big mysteries because both of these cells are. GABAergic or inhibitory. And, uh, you know, when we first started these studies, it, it kind of looked to us at the anatomical level that they were also projecting to many of the same places, maybe slightly different regions, but with, within a given target, but basically the same targets. Um, we've since become um, more precise in terms of how we're targeting these cells. And this is starting to, so we're using uh, intersectional genetics to try to get it, you know, kind of only the subset of parvalbumin neurons that are, you know, truly parvalbumin positive um, and are themselves sufficient to induce this rescue. And then like only the ones that are truly only LHX6 uh, positive and, and none of this overlapping population. And as we're doing that, we're starting to see more and more differences in terms of their anatomical projections. Um, and uh, so I, I'm, I'm thinking that it's just where these neurons are going and releasing GABA, like who they're inhibiting, that's, uh, that's going to be a key to unraveling the mechanism of this. Yeah. <laughs> and they have different inputs, these two yeah. cell yes. types. Yeah. So even though their outputs are not dramatically different, their inputs are dramatically different. So yeah. under normal circumstances, they would be carrying different kind of signals. Mm -hmm. Right. So we've always thought of the globus pallidus as having a single function, mm -hmm. which is a kind of slow down or stop kind of function in behavior. That's, mm -hmm. yeah. Of course, that's really ridiculous for us to entertain <laughs> ideas like that, but we do. We do anyway, because it's the best we've got. Yeah. So, uh, but it's not necessarily the case. Intermixed between with those cells could be other cells that have completely different behavioral functions. And it seems like that's happening in globus pallidus. The number of cells with different behavioral functions are kind of blowing up. And that's an easy kind of experiment to do now. Because if you have these markers, mm -hmm. which don't actually tell you anything about this cell, right. but they're right. just a marker. Yep. But if you have those markers, you can decide, well, I'm just going to turn on this weird mm -hmm. cell type that's been discovered with this marker and mm -hmm. see what happens in behavior and compare that to turning on some other cell type. Yeah. And what people see is dramatically different mm -hmm. results in behavior depending on which, I don't know how many cell types we're up to now, but it's at least half a dozen. It's at least half a dozen. So uh, so if they, if it's starting to make sense a little bit that different mm -hmm. cell types could be doing different things and that different and the different cell types could be getting different inputs that so are basically different channels of information living in the same space mm -hmm. with each other, yeah. which is a common theme in the mm -hmm. brain somehow. Yeah. So what do we know about that? the inputs to those two different groups that could help us understand if, if anything? Yeah, <laughs> if anything. yeah. yeah. so... Uh, you know, when we, we identified these two classes of neurons as being important therapeutic targets using 
uh, channel adopts in optogenetics. Um, but then the question was, how can we take that kind of research tool that's used to target these specific populations of cells and then translate that into something that can be used in people where we can't currently use optogenetics? Um, and so this is where we got the idea to see if we could uh, tweak the stimulation patterns for DBS somehow. Um, you know, an electrical signal that in its um, you know, most commonly used form is not cell type specific, but maybe we could um, find something different about the biology of these cell types and then um, change the stimulation pattern to kind of leverage that different biology, therefore get different responses um, during stimulation from these two populations of cells. Um, kind of mimicking what we did previously with optogenetics, but using a medium that's very translatable to humans. Um, and so uh, we found that, um, the, uh, as you mentioned, because the input of these cells is different, so they're getting, um, they both get an excitatory input from the subthalamic nucleus, which is the more common target for DBS in humans. Um, but that input was pretty comparable to both classes of cells. And so just activating that input by itself wasn't sufficient to drive different responses. Um, but uh, yet, you know, when we stimulate, we see this, you know, pause in the firing of the LHX6 neurons and this excitation in the firing of PV cells. And so we were really curious about where this pause in the firing of the, of the LHX6 population was coming from. Um, you know, normally GABAergic inputs are what cause suppressions of firing, and so um, the obvious GABAergic input was coming from the striatum, which is the major GABAergic input to the to the globus pallidus. Um, but I, I, at first, I was skeptical that that was going to be the answer because that input has been shown to be really strong onto all classes of GPE neurons, um, and given the the you know spatial location of where we were electrically stimulating versus where those projections are coming. Um, it didn't seem likely that that was going to be an input. We tried it anyway. And um, kind of the, this canonical inhibitory pathway from the striatum to the globus pallidus does indeed inhibit pretty much everything. Um, but there's kind of a, a non-canonical projection um, that's been described anatomically in the past um, that uh, somehow hasn't um, kind of made it into um, standard thinking about organization of basal ganglia. And that is that the striatum, this you know, major inhibitory input to the globus pallidus, it also, a different set of neurons in the striatum, bypass the globus pallidus and go directly to basal ganglia output. But um, most of those neurons actually send a little kind of... Uh, collateral, a little, you know, send a little piece of their axon into the globus pallidus. And, um, and so we thought, well, you know, maybe it's not this like major striatal input to the GPE that's giving us inhibition of this one population. Maybe it's this kind of non-canonical pathway of, from the striatum of getting to the GPE. And so using channel we were able to um, excite just this kind of non-canonical input pathway to the GPE. And we saw that it was directly inhibiting the LHX6 neurons, didn't inhibit the PV neurons at all. So we said, aha, okay, this gives us now, we have an inhibitory input that's specific to the cells we want to turn off, and then excitatory input that will kind of drive both populations. So if we can position our electrical stimulating electrode 
in the right place and stimulate really briefly so that we recruit the synaptic input without fatiguing the synapses, then this should give us a way of transiently turning off the LHX6 neurons, but exciting the parvalbumin neurons using only electrical stimulation. And, uh, and so we were really excited that when we tried this, that it, it was shown to work even better than, than we originally thought going into this project. So, yeah. Maybe sort of a step back, like what are the frequencies that people have used with DBS? And I don't know if anybody even knows this, but like why, what, what was the impetus for even getting started with that? And I mean, I know DBS has been, you know, used for a whole host of things. I mean, obviously movement disorders, but you know, there's been a larger, you know, movement of seeing, looking in mental health disorders, drug addiction. And I mean, so, I mean, the work you have here clearly can, you know, extend out to other, you know, mental health disorders and being able to potentially identify how these stimulation patterns can regulate different neuronal subtypes in, you know, different brain regions. But I guess, what frequency do people use and why was it? Or does, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, um, like many discoveries in science, uh, the, the original frequency for DBS was discovered by accident. <laughs> so um, I'd say the, the standard conventional frequency is somewhere between 150 to 200 hertz or so, or 100 hertz to 200 hertz. Um, so you know, really rapid uh, stimulation, and then it's just like always on. And the way that this was discovered is that um, the treatment for Parkinson's disease before there was DBS is that you just had to lesion the output of the basal ganglia because you were better off getting rid of it <laughs> than, than you were with it. Um, so, uh, and the way that you do these lesions is you would put an electrode in there and essentially like fry that part of the brain. And then as the neurosurgeons were doing this, they discovered that, um, you know, a lot of times these experiments are done when patients are awake. So you make sure that you're not, you know, taking out the language center or something as you're bringing your electrode down. And they found that um, patients were actually kind of getting better even before the lesion was complete. Um, and so there was, so then there, there was like a really nice partnership actually between kind of like, you know, bench research science and then clinical practice. And they sort of figured out, ah, you know, we can actually do kind of like a sub-lesioning stimulation. Um, and if we just are able to maintain that, then the symptoms stay away while we're doing that. Um, and so, you know, the idea is like, this can be reversible. And this is where this idea of like, maybe DBS is working because it's um, kind of an informational lesion. Like, while the stimulation is so high, information can't be passing through there. Um, and so this was seen as sort of a, a reversible lesion by using electrical, this high frequency electrical stimulation. Although now, of course, this exactly why it's working is, is debated. Um, but what we found is that if you have this continuous stimulation on, um, the synapses connecting neurons like in the vicinity of where you're stimulating um, get kind of overwhelmed and they never have a chance to recover. They can only keep up with so, so much uh, electrical activity. And if you're constantly pressing them to fire at 100 hertz or 200 hertz, the neurons just aren't built to do that. So. Um, so as you turn the stimulator on within a couple of seconds, the kind of natural uh, architecture of these circuits and the synaptic connections kind of um, uh, are bypassed. And like the only thing going on is the electrical stimulation. Um, and so we, so we thought, well, if you just keep the stimulation brief, 
you know, less than a second, then maybe that would um, allow this, you know, these differences in the synaptic inputs to have a bigger say in how neurons are responding to the electrical stimulation and that this would um, give us the specificity. So we started by bursting our stimulation um, at 100 hertz, um, keeping the, the stimulation for less than a second, and then we'd wait 30 seconds or so and we'd deliver the stimulation again. And we, when we did this in brain slices, we found that this is the thing that gave us the nice population specificity. Um, and then we asked, okay, did we get really lucky in finding these stimulations or is there like actually a range of stimulation protocols that will give us the specificity? And so for that, we, uh, we collaborated with a colleague, uh, Andreas Fenning, who's in the um, computer science department at Carnegie Mellon. And he helped us to construct a predictive model that would say, well, if this is the pattern of stimulation, what is it likely to be doing to the synapses? Is it likely to speed up the parvalbumin neurons, inhibit the LHX6 neurons, speed everything up, turn everything off? And um, it allowed us to really densely sample a much broader stimulus parameter space than we would have been able to do kind of one at a time experimentally. And so we were able to kind of whittle down the, the most specific range um, using electrical stimulation. Um, and the, the model predicts, and we validated this experimentally, that you know, somewhere using bursts that are one second or less, um, the, the kind of optimal range was found to be about 200 milliseconds long. And then um, within that 200 milliseconds, the frequency of stimulation should be between 100 and 300 hertz, um, ideally around 175 hertz is where we sort of settled on. Um, and then the stimulations can be delivered once a second. If instead of 200 milliseconds, if you leave it on for one second, you need to kind of wait a little longer between pulses because the synapses are gonna take longer to recover. But this is how we kind of narrowed down the range of stimulus parameters that we could use um, to then test in vivo. So ironically, <laughs> if you adjust the stimulus so it doesn't do what everybody said it did, which yeah. is to shut everything down, yeah. then it suddenly starts to work much better. That's true. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> the hidden, hidden gems of the brain. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Um, I think uh, discovering the hidden gem of the brain is a good ending <laughs> to this. So, thanks, Aaron, for joining us, and Matt. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.